Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 159 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's amazing guest is none other than Brooks Jensen, someone who I have admired for many years. Brooks Jensen is a fine art photographer, publisher, workshop teacher, and writer. He and his wife, Maureen Gallagher, are the owners, co-founders, editors, and publishers of the award-winning Lenswork, one of today's most respected and important periodicals in fine art photography. With subscribers in 72 countries, Brooks' impact on fine art photography is truly worldwide. Lenswork Publishing is also at the leading edge in multimedia and digital publishing, with Lenswork Extended, a PDF-based, media-rich expanded version of the magazine. Brooks' personal work can be seen in his ongoing series, Kokoro, a PDF-based downloadable periodical. Lenswork Online, a membership website, features 10 channels of content featuring Brooks' 50 years of experience in fine art photography, including audio programs and video programs. And I got a taste of some of these over the weekend, and holy cow, there's, it's, there's stuff in there, interviews with Ansel Adams and all kinds of people. It's amazing. Brooks is the author of 10 best-selling books on photography and creativity, including Looking at Images, The Creative Life in Photography, and many more. Over on Patreon this week, Brooks and I discussed the pros and cons of doing open edition prints versus limited edition prints, a conversation based on an article that Brooks wrote which has defined my views on the subject. I hope you enjoy our conversations. Okay, let's get to the show. Well, Brooks Jensen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, I have been a big fan of yours for, gosh, I think ever since I started as a photographer over a decade ago and um, have been, I've loved consuming, you know, all of the articles and, and things that you've put out over the years. And it's just a real delight to have you here. Thanks. Yeah. Like I say, glad, glad to be here. Always fun to see, uh, there's new people picking up, uh, and carrying the torch forward because all the rest of us are getting older, you know? <laughs> right. Well, gosh, isn't that the way it's supposed to work? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, that's actually one thing that I find interesting about landscape photography in the last, gosh, I don't know, decade is that it seems like that notion of on of you know having having an apprentice or having someone study under you and learn from you has kind of been diminished to some degree. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Well, certainly here in the age of the internet. I mean, when I got started right. in photography, which was basically uh, 1970, is sort of the the benchmark that I use for my earliest days in photography. I can tell you how I got started, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in, in those days, there wasn't a tremendous amount of material available that would teach you sort of how to pursue photography as a passionate uh, art medium. You could, mm -hmm. you could find lots of materials on how to process materials, how to, how to, you know, develop film, make a print, that kind of stuff. There was, there's how to educational materials readily available, but in terms of pursuing an art career, 
you know, the, keep in mind, 1970, this was, for all intents and purposes, before uh, B.A., as we like to say, before Ansel Adams. He, <laughs> he didn't become a big thing, and fine art photography didn't become a big thing until really a few years later, in the mid-70s, is when right. photography started to be recognized. And so the the way we learned photography was primarily to go to workshops. And you would sit at the feet of someone who was doing excellent work and absorb everything they were willing to give you. Fast forward to today now, we live in the age of the internet and workshops are having a hard time getting students to fill them because people think all they have to do is go learn about the latest Photoshop filter or some such thing, and that'll make them a photographer. And it's 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 different now than it used to be. And I'm not sure it's better, quite honestly, but then I just might be an old fart. <laughs> no, I actually kind of personally, I long for wishing it was more kind of in that style in terms of, you know, learning from the masters and, uh, I, I feel like people just want shortcuts nowadays. And, you know, like you said, Instagram filters or Lightroom filters or, or presets or whatever. And they feel like, Oh, if I just get that preset, I'll just, I'll be just like that person and, and I'll be a great photographer. And, and I think most of us that have been doing this longer than a couple of years recognize that the longer that you do photography, the less, you know, in some ways, <laughs> Well, it, there's uh, some things that are at play that are even more insidious than that, and and it it it's this: when I would sign up to do a workshop, I would go to, as you say, sit at the feet of the master and all of that business. But primarily, I chose which workshops to go to because the teacher offered some specific skill that I wanted to learn. Uh, Or I I really enjoyed their photography, and so I wanted to have them do a critique of my work so that I could learn what they saw that maybe I didn't see and whatnot. So so the primary motivation was learn some skill, have your work looked at. What I had no idea that was even more valuable is attending a workshop so that you could learn – the aesthetic of photography so that you could see really terrific work in original prints, not only from the instructors, but from the rest of the people who were there and, and have a direct comparison between the work we were doing and the work that the masters were doing, whoever the instructors were at the time. And, uh, you know, if you had said that's the reason to go to a workshop and why you're going to spend a bunch of money and a week of your life to go to a workshop, no one would go. You, you went to learn the zone system or you went to learn, you know, it, to use today's language, you go to, uh, you know, learn some Photoshop filter or some such thing. But that's not the most important thing that you learn when you go to a workshop. And none of us knew that at the time. But looking back on it, we can see that. Well, fast forward to today, everybody says, well, I need to learn a Photoshop thing. So they go on the internet and YouTube or whatever. They learn the Photoshop thing and they think they've got it. What they missed was the entire experience of learning how to see photography and why they ought to make certain aesthetic decisions or not and what the alternatives might be and learn something about the history of photography and so there there's so many more reasons to to look back at that sort of 
well, semi-apprentice kind of approach or workshop approach, if you will. There's so much, so many reasons to look back at that and realize that it has something to offer. But of course, with today's generation, you'll never convince people of that until they have the experience themselves and then say, I wish I'd been doing this from the beginning. Right. You know, it was interesting. I I had the opportunity to be an instructor at Out of Yosemite recently. And, you know, John Sexton was also there and William Neal and Alan Ross. And and it was really interesting because a lot of the, I guess you could say the, the, the photographers that kind of came from that era that you were describing, they, when they did portfolio reviews of for students, they actually requested that they bring, you know, physical prints to Mm -hmm. their portfolio review, which, you know, I think for a lot of people that have been doing photography only since the the invention of digital, that is, that, that seems kind of odd. Um, But I, as you were describing that experience of sitting down with someone and being able to actually look at a print and, you know, compare and contrast your work versus their work and learn about how to do things differently or why did you make those decisions? I think that that approach makes a lot of sense once you start to see it unfold in person. Well, the very first workshop I ever went to uh, in the early 80s, it was uh, taught by John Sexton, Bruce Barnbaum, and Ray McSaveny. And uh, I learned uh, such a tremendous amount with one simple question. We were having a field session. I had my camera set up. I was trying to compose on this little thing. And Bruce Barnbaum came by and looked in the back of my view camera and saw what I was composing on. And he said, well, why are you making that picture? Hmm. He, he didn't ask what f-stop I was using, what shutter speed, what film, what focal length lens, why I chose that composition, how it related to rule of thirds. He wanted to know what my motivation was for making that image. And I, I was nonplussed. I, I said, I, I have no idea. I'm at a workshop here. I'm supposed to be making images. I pointed my camera at this thing. You know, I mean, I, I have no idea because it's really not a very meaningful composition to me. Yeah. And he picked up my camera and handed it, you know, tripod and all, just picked it up and handed it to me and then said, don't waste your time. If if you're not motivated to make the photograph for some specific reason, don't, don't waste your time. And Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, Br- Bruce is that way. I mean, he he's <laughs> a fabulous teacher. He can be a little hard on you, but he's hard on you because he's got such a heart of compassion. But I've never forgotten the lesson, and now when I point my camera at something, it better be because I'm having some sort of response Mm. to the thing or the place or the moment or the light or something. And if I don't have a response, uh, don't waste your time. Mm. I love that. I think that's – I mean, that that statement alone I feel like could transform so many many individuals' photography – if they do just took the time to think about that or or even just dial into the feeling that they're having in that moment i think oftentimes people you know especially people like me you know i'm i'm not like a super touchy feely person i'm mostly in my head most days but uh asking those kind of questions it definitely makes your photography improve quite a bit well it also gets you focused on images rather than techniques and so much of photography these days has sort of 
devolved, if I can use that term, devolved into a discussion of techniques, which is fascinating because the cameras have become so sophisticated that now all of a sudden you kind of don't need to have technique in some regard. I mean, you do, but you know what I'm, what I'm saying is the sure. cameras are so sophisticated because they're little tiny computers. They can make up for all kinds of questionable decisions that a photographer might make, you know, things like auto bracketing and all that <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Make photography pretty simple. A friend of mine puts it this way, which is fascinating. He says, you know, it used to be that we'd go out and maybe in a, in a busy weekend, we might expose 50 sheets of four by five film. And if we were really lucky, we'd get one or two of them that were worth printing. Now you go out for a weekend of photography with a digital camera, and because you know exactly what you're going to get before you click the shutter and you've got the power of Photoshop waiting for you back home, the chances are at a busy weekend you're going to come back with about 1,500 pictures, and they're all going to be perfectly sharp and perfectly exposed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so – you know, the the difference between what happens today and what happened back then is so substantial that it seems odd to me that people are still focused on technique as the heart of photography when, well, it may be in some regards, but n not if you're trying to use photography as a personally expressive fine art medium. The technique is easy, and what you want to say and how you're going to say it in a unique and captivating and mesmerizing way becomes the real challenge. It's about content, 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 not mm -hmm. about technique, technique, technique. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the process for somebody to actually engage in creating those more meaningful, personally expressive images you know, I've, I definitely agree with what you said that it's become about technique and a lot of photographers for, for no wrong reason, I, I feel like have kind of lost touch with why they're making photos to begin with. And, you know, I think there are some individuals out there that I can point to that are contemporary photographers that have figured it out and they do make personally meaning, meaningful photos. Uh, but it seems to be a relatively rare thing these days. And I'm curious, what what do you think that process looks like? Well, um, let me go back to one of my favorite quotes from Morley Bear. And um, Morley Bear is a really fabulous photographer, not as well known as some of his contemporaries, but he was one of the one of the Carmel, California area photographers of roughly that generation mm -hmm. that uh, produced so many famous photographers. I can't remember where he was age-wise relative to Ansel Adams, but I, I think roughly the same age. Anyway, Morley Bear said, in order to be a great photographer, you first have to be a good person. Hmm. And by that, he didn't mean like a moral person or it wasn't a, it wasn't a moral valuative statement what he meant was you have to be sort of sensitive and enlightened and a feeling person and you have to have something to say which means you have to be paying attention to life and I, I often tweet John Sexton now. He and I have become friends over the years, and particularly because he's been in lens work a number of times, and I've been able to interview him and whatnot. 
And but he he is often saying in his workshops that photography is about light. And I, I can't argue with that, but I do tweak him by saying that if to say that photography is about light is the same thing as saying that good writing is about verb conjugation. <laughs> I mean, light is one of the tools that we use. It's maybe the most important tool that we use. But if photography is about light, I think it misses the point. Photography needs to be about life. And that's what Morley Bear was trying to get at. If, if you haven't engaged life, if you don't have something to say about life, if you're just sort of numb to what's going on around you and use a camera basically as a recording device, you're probably not going to make very interesting art. Or if you do, it's going to be a function of luck rather than sensitivity and skill. So from, from my perspective, the way uh, the art life starts is by cultivating awareness, by cultivating sensitivity, by cultivating compassion and empathy and understanding, and all of that works through you and eventually comes out in whatever your art medium is. And, and it could be song, it could be dance, it could be sculpture, painting. We happen to like photography, and most of us happen to like photography because we can't draw stick figures worth a damn. But, <laughs> but be that as it may, if um, if it, it, well, let me put it this way: if someone who did pen and ink drawing was totally focused on which brand of pencils were better than the other brand of pencils, you'd wonder about whether or not they're going to ever make decent art, mm. you know. But if someone who is sensitive to life and has something to say and has a compassionate art heart could probably make interesting artwork no matter what their chosen medium is. And so we choose photography because we like photography and because it's fun and because the equipment's kind of fun to play around with. But we better have a heart or you're not going to make artwork. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think as nature and landscape photographers that, um, you know, crossing that divide between um, translating what we're feeling and what what we're what the heart is saying, and what life is about. You know all of those kind of human expressive traits that we have as social beings. Sometimes the literal uh, translation that you find in nature isn't as easy to translate in terms of what you find. And I think a lot of nature and landscape photographers struggle with kind of crossing that divide. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what, what that process looks like for somebody who might be struggling with that. Well, here again, if you look at a landscape and it doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up or your heart go pitter patter, or, <laughs> you know, if, if, if it doesn't excite you emotionally some way or another, then don't waste your time. I mean, we're back to Bruce Barnbaum 101. Um, <laughs> so uh, so the, the problem with landscape photography, it, in my humble opinion, is that it has degenerated into 
how do I want to say this? It it's sort of become a, a pursuit of the most spectacular moment. Mm-hmm. And th- that's maybe a function of uh, what we've inherited from some of the landscape photographers that went before us. It may be a function of marketing. I- I'm not sure. But, you know, the, the idea that you can make a, an interesting landscape photograph with dull, overcast skies mm-hmm. it do- doesn't occur to most people who are doing landscape photography. They want spectacular light. They, they get up in the morning and get the, you know, the, the early morning light, the blue light or the golden hour light, and that's when you're supposed to take photographs. And it's got to be absolutely spectacular, and it's got to be a scene that's pristine. And, uh, you know, those those conditions make some lovely photographs but if that's all you see in the landscape you're a little bit numb because what you're doing is searching for the ideal and you've limited yourself to the ideal so so maybe a better way to illustrate this is to compare it to portraiture mm-hmm. what if in portraiture the only thing you were willing to photograph was someone who is absolutely stunningly beautiful. And right. if they're not stunningly beautiful, male or female, either way, if, if they're not absolutely stunningly beautiful, you say, well, that's not worth taking a picture of because they're not, uh, they're not outstanding. Well, think of all the wonderful portraits of sort of ordinary people, if I can use that term, Sure. Uh, think of all the stunning portraits of ordinary people who you would not photograph. So Paul Strand has always been one of my favorite photographers, and he did a classic book that, that still influences me to this day. It came out in the, uh, I think it was the early 70s, maybe, called Tira Moran, where he photographed uh, people on the Hebrides Islands. And you could look at his landscapes and, wow, they're very, very interesting. Stunning light and beautiful things, uh, you know, the perfect moment, all of that stuff. But he also did portraits of the people there on the Hebrides Islands who were anything but, you know, (laughs) Angelina Jolie or, you know, somebody. They're not Tom Cruise lookalikes. They're farmers. They're normal. but, But the portraits are absolutely riveting and they're stunning. Well, translate that then back to landscape. If all you're willing to photograph in the landscape is that absolutely stunning moment, it can be a fun game. I, you know, if that's what you want to do, I go ahead and do it. It's, you know, there's, there's nothing to prevent you from doing it, but you're going to miss making lots of interesting pictures that could be made of things that are not stunning, that are um, very interesting but require a different kind of sensitivity and a different kind of approach photographically to make an interesting photograph. Mm. Yeah, that's an, that's, that's a great way of putting it. I feel like me personally, I unfortunately, for whatever reason, took that, you know, that path of only photographing those epic moments. That was, that was what I chased for years and years and years. And honestly, uh, it, it became, mm, 
I guess the word I would use is uh, disappointing uh, because, you know, let's be honest, not every time you go out into nature, it's going to look that way, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so it just got to be kind of, it just wore on me as a photographer. Like every time I would go out, I would, it would not meet the expectations that I had in my mind. Um, and somehow at some point, probably about three years ago, three, four years ago, I, I stopped having those expectations and just opened my mind to experiencing nature and, and the landscape. However, I found it and whatever interested me, kind of like what you were saying, like if it doesn't make you excited, then don't take a picture of it. And when you don't have those expectations of those epics, epic scenes, it, it definitely opens your mind to all kinds of possibilities in terms of translating how you feel or, or translating, you know, like you said, those things that are potentially mundane are now, you know, through the interpretation of your lens, maybe not so mundane. So I think, I think that's an important uh, lesson and statement that you just kind of illustrated that I, I hope other landscape photographers take to heart. You know, it basically boils down to a philosophy of art making, if you will. Yeah. And <laughs> by that, I mean this. When you go out with your camera into the world to make photographs, are you going out with an acquisitive nature? You're going out to get something. In, in which case, you, you tend to take with you preconceived ideas about what it is that you want and and the world had better conform <laughs> to what it is that you want or right. or it's a failed session or a disappointing session or you should have gone someplace else and to some degree that that also is a function of where you choose to go you know so if you think that's mm -hmm. what you what photography is about is the acquisition of the uh, I like your term, by the way, epic image. That's a good one. Uh, if that's what your objective is, then you're going to go to epic places like Yosemite or like Antarctica or Iceland or wherever the case may be. You're not likely to go to your backyard because that's not the place. The other, the other philosophical approach, however, is sort of the opposite. Instead of going out into the world to acquire something with a, as an act of acquisition from the world and imposition of your will and aesthetic judgments onto the world, if you go out to the world with the idea of receiving, hmm. of being humble, of having the responsibility as an art maker to respond to what the world is trying to tell you. It, it's it's going to whisper something to you, and it may be more difficult to hear. But then every time you go out, the world will whisper to you things that you could photograph here and there, and you will receive and be grateful. And like I say, maybe even a little humble, as opposed to going out with the idea of conquering. And they're two completely different approaches. And I think they end up with two completely different kinds of images. And who knows? Uh, you know, I'm no arbiter of such things. And so maybe there's a case to be made for both kinds of photography. All I can say is that in terms of my work in the landscape, I'm much more attuned to that second approach where I go out 
wherever and whenever. I could almost do it at random. Sure. And there's photographs to be made if I'm sensitive enough and if I allow the world to come to me. So uh, Anais Nin said it beautifully. Um, do not speak unless spoken through. Mm. You know, and it's that idea that we as artists are a conduit for artwork to come through us and for us to make something by having first received it, in which case there are no preconceived ideas. We're, we're out there to accept the gifts. Mm. At least that's my idea. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think a lot of modern landscape photographers, either because of social media or, you know, Instagram, 500px, whatever, you know, being saturated with stunning, you know, epic, as we were saying, epic photos. I I think that um, there's just kind of this mindset that uh, the people have kind of gotten themselves into in terms of evaluating whether or not something is photo worthy. And I'm curious, you know, to take that latter approach, as you mentioned, in terms of receiving what you discover as you head out into the world with your camera. Do you think that that's a, a mind shift or is that, is there, are there steps that someone can take as someone who's been, you know, saturated with what these kind of preconceived ideas of what a great landscape photograph should be? Like, is there a, a way to make that transition? Well, perhaps, uh, the way I tend to think about it is, strictly from a pragmatic point of view, rather than a philosophical one. If you go out into the world with the idea that you want the world to perform the way you expect it to in order to make the spectacular image, as you said, you're likely to be disappointed more times than not, in which case photography kind of ends up leaving a sour taste in your mouth. Um, or at the other end of the spectrum, let's say you do find yourself at a spectacular scene and a spectacular light, etc., and you photograph it, and you're very proud of it, and you think you've accomplished something, and you put it up on the internet and Instagram or wherever, and people give you thumbs down because you know you you shouldn't have had that leaf in the corner. You know? <laughs> I mean, that that also can leave a sour taste in your mouth because it's not perfect. The pursuit of perfection is one thing, but the imposition of will on the world is a different sort of thing. I think we can be receptive and sensitive and all of that and still pursue perfection, but it's a different kind of perfection. It's the kind of perfection where we are doing our best to communicate what the world wants us to communicate rather than to impose our will. But but there's an even another way that all of this, I think, is sort of insidious, particularly uh, social media and thumbs up, thumbs down, and all of that. What that tends to do, which, by the way, as an aside, is precisely why I don't participate in social media whatsoever. I, mm. I, I don't have <laughs> no no Instagram, no Facebook, no nothing. Um, is because the thumbs-up, thumbs-down approach to social media will tend to push an artist more and more towards the conventions, towards mm -hmm. the cliches, sure. towards the expected. So when someone says thumbs-down, 
it may look on the surface like they're saying, I don't like this. But more than that, what they're probably saying is, this doesn't meet my expectations. <laughs> and their expectations are probably a function of training. It's like a Pavlov dog thing. You know, uh, uh, a, a beautiful landscape photograph of the mountains is supposed to look like this, and yours doesn't, so therefore it gets thumbs down. Or yours does, and it gets thumbs up. And so now we start counting how many angels are dancing on the head of the pin. What's my ratio of thumbs up to thumbs down? <laughs> and that translates into, to some degree, our our feeling of worthiness as an artist and whether or not people value what we do and whether we're on the right path and all of that which pushes artists more and more and more into the conventional, the expected, the cliche, which is exactly the opposite of what artists are supposed to be doing. Mm. My view of an artist has always been that an artist is, and has been throughout all of history, a seer, uh, like a mystic. Uh, the, the role of the artist is to see what society cannot see for itself. Hmm. Uh, they, they go to the mystical place and they bring back the vision which normal people can't have or don't have or don't have the time to have or whatever. Think of travel photography. We don't all have the time to go to Tibet right. or Nepal. And so photographers go to Tibet or Nepal and they bring back their photographs from there. And that's the role of the artist is to show us what we can't see for ourselves. But to some degree, if we then place a value on what's brought back as, as measuring up to the cliche of what we've been taught this is supposed to be, then it pushes artists to become less and less seers and more and more sort of like performing monkeys. <laughs> and and you know, that's not what, good. What's what was interesting about what you said earlier about uh what it kind of pushes people to do and conform to. I I have personally kind of noticed and I, I could be wrong, but I've just, you know, I've been studying landscape photography for a while now and what I've noticed is that this phenomenon of being pushed in these directions by convention and social media and whatnot, it, it tends to push artists in one of two directions is what I've seen. And one direction you have people who have decided that, you know, I am going to, I'm going to make this photograph as perfect as possible. And I am going to use any tool at my disposal in order to accomplish that goal. So I'm going to, swap skies. I'm going to composite. I'm going to, you know, pull in a foreground from this scene and pull in a foreground from that scene. And I'm going to make what I think to be as a the perfect embodiment of this scene that I could ever possibly imagine. And then on the other side, I've seen people be pushed in the direction of creating work that is not necessarily perfect, but is more personally expressive and um, and I, and I admit I'm kind of oversimplifying a little here, but, uh, just to create 
this picture, but uh, you have artists that that don't do any of this kind of digital over manipulation and and they're creating art that's totally unique to them. And I've I've just been really curious to see that how one person has gone in that direction versus the other. And I'm curious if you've also kind of seen it that way or if you see it a little differently. Well, I think it entirely depends on what your definition of perfect is. <laughs> the, you know, the first group of people that you described are chasing sort of the perfect cliché. So if if my photograph is really really terrific except for the clouds are, you know, they could be a little better. So I'm going to paste in some clouds from another photograph I had where the clouds were perfect but the mountain wasn't. Now by combining the two digitally, I have the perfect mountain and the perfect clouds. What do they have? Well, they they have the more perfect cliché. That is to say, it's the ultimate act of kind of imposing their will on the landscape rather than receiving what's there. So that's, and maybe that's a definition of perfect that is, you know, perfectly acceptable for some people, but it tends to make pictures that are boring, uh, well, maybe not boring. That's maybe the wrong word. Uh, unmemorable in the sense that when you take that photograph and you mat it and frame it and put it on the wall, it's such a cliche and such a perfect representation that it has no personality to it whatsoever. And so therefore, who the photographer is, is totally immaterial. So no one knows who makes those kinds of pictures. You know, it's, it's the ultimate calendar shot mm-hmm. is we probably don't know who the photographer is. We don't care who the photographer is because it's not a personally expressive piece of artwork. What it is, is the, the perfectly generic, perfectly interchangeable piece of work with someone else. And if that's what you want to do, great. There's no reason not to do it if that's what juices your jets. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, particularly lens work readers, they're interested in doing something that's a little more personally expressive, that has a little bit of them in the fo- in the photograph, so that the fact that that they saw it, they felt it. They made it, they're sharing it with you so that you can hopefully see something and feel something from it. There's a connection. So that's the other way to think about this is uh, I've said for years now in my writing and in my books that art is about connection. Photography is about connection. It's a way to allow us to connect with another human being. Well, take that perfect picture that's framed and matted and on the wall that's the perfect cliché. Is the connection there between the viewer and the photographer who made it or the viewer and the artifact of the photograph itself, or even worse, the location where it was made? Mm-hmm. Then, then there really isn't a connection because there's a connection between a viewer and something inanimate, either the art object or the scene. This is what I've referred to for years as a photography as window to the world. It's as though the photographer has transported you 
physically, bodily, to a time and place where you didn't go so that you can see a scene that you didn't see. And so the photograph on the wall functions as a window and the photographer is absent. That's not the kind of connection, I think, that most of us who think about this as a personally expressive art are interested in making. We're interested in making a connection with an individual that is a little more personal than that. So we don't want to disappear from the scene. We, we want to be there as the creator, as the photographer, as the person who made it and connect with that person via the, the photograph, but we don't want to be invisible. You know, before we were before we were recording, you had mentioned that uh, with you know art museums and curators of fine art, that landscape photography has kind of become a joke in in some circles in terms of well, for whatever reason, that it's you know we're kind of the laughing stock of the art world, and I'm wondering if you think that it's because to a large degree, landscape photography has kind of evolved into this portrayal through a window of a perfect scene that potentially lacks that kind of personal expressive functionality that 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 people that appreciate art are looking for. Well, maybe, but but you couldn't make that statement about painting, for example. If you look at a Bierstadt landscape, you know, he he was very much into the, I love your term, the epic moment. Yes. <laughs> he, he was, his paintings are all about epic moments. And he's not considered, you know, a secondary artist. He's highly collected. His work is valued, etc. even though he did epic moment paintings. So I'm, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that it's uh, that that's the reason why the current contemporary galleries are down on landscapes. Not all of them are, by the way. This that's sort of a unfair statement to say they're all that way because nothing sure. is ever all one way or the other. Obviously, but right. but um, but there's no question that contemporary galleries are maybe not as enthusiastic about landscape photography as they were. Uh, you know, in previous decades, I think that's mostly the fault of Ansel Adams <laughs> is that uh, he became so popular and so uh, ubiquitous and so identified with the entire idea of fine art photography that the pendulum swung toward landscape with tremendous force and it's just sort of swinging back in the other direction now. Mm -hmm. And so it, it'll come back. I mean, it, it will, these, these things, you know, there's fashions come and fashions go. And sure. I, I wasn't even aware of it quite honestly, until I happened to be in China in um, 2000 and I think it was 2009. I was there at a, at a huge photo festival and there was uh, 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 about 120 of us had been invited from the West, from America, Canada, South America, and Europe. And uh, and it was photographers and publishers and gallery owners and et cetera. And we were all there to represent uh, ourselves at this big photo festival. I went to a dinner 
uh, I had been out photographing for the day, and so I got back kind of late. And when I got to the dinner where they were feeding all of this 120-some-odd Europeans and Americans, there was only one chair left, and it happened to be uh, with a group of New York gallery owners. <laughs> and fortunately, one of the people there I knew and so I went up and can I sit here? Sure, yeah, welcome, sit down. And she introduced me to all the other people. This is Brooks Jensen. He's the publisher of, of Lens Work. And she was introducing me. And one of the people in the gallery, uh, one of the gallery owners, looked at me and said, Oh, Lens Work, that's right. You're the one still publishing landscapes. <laughs> <laughs> And it was a real moment of illumination for me because it never occurred to me that we were doing anything unusual, uh, <laughs> but it turns out we sort of were, <laughs> but that's okay. I, you know, as I've, as I've told the story in other venues, I say, I don't think I've ever been so proud of lens work in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the whole idea of, of photography, especially, you know, landscape photography as an art form was kind of, it was kind of a notion that was born out of, you know, Ansel Adams and, you know, Edward Weston and, you know, Group F64 and, and how they basically were rebelling against pictorialism and, and artists like Albert Bierstadt and things of that nature. And they wanted, you know, the, the print to be a perfect representation of, their, you know, of their expression of what they saw. And, um, it's just interesting to see that, uh, that the, that the interpretation of what makes a epic artistic landscape photograph for some people is kind of the opposite of what landscape photography as an art form was created to be from that perspective. Well, you're you're missing, I think, uh, one really important person that I wish more people would study, and that's P.H. Emerson, because he's sort of the transition photographer between, uh, you know, uh, Jackson and the straight documentary landscape and uh, Adams and Weston and the interpretive landscape. And, and I think, uh, really, he's worth looking at. But set that aside for a moment. Um, I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. Look at, look at the difference between uh, the work of Edward Weston and the work of Ansel Adams. Edward Weston made things like dead pelicans. Right. You know, and – uh, well, I'm talking about his landscape work now. But but so you've got Ansel Adams showing us the spectacular views of Yosemite with unbelievable light and detail and all that kind of stuff. And then here's Edward Weston with the dead pelican. Well, curiously enough, Edward Weston predates Ansel. Weston was a generation uh, older than Ansel. So right. when Ansel was making his images – you know, he was sort of the youngster on the scene compared to right. Edward Weston. So something happened with Ansel Adams that made the spectacular image become the thing that is so pursued in landscape photography. And be it right or wrong, my pet theory is this, that uh, 
Ansel Adams rode the coattails of something that was much bigger than photography, much, much bigger than him, and that was the environmental movement. And the environmental movement made two great pop culture icons, and that was Ansel Adams and John Denver. (laughs) (laughs) And they, they sort of stood for this thing that was way bigger than them. And of course, Ansel Adams was involved with the Sierra club and all of that. And he put out all those calendars and posters and whatnot. And for a generation of photographers who came after him, he kind of defined what landscape was. You don't find very many landscape photographers who came to their maturity in the 90s or the early part of of this century who are making images that look like Edward Weston's images or or even that look like Minor White's images. They all tend to be this spectacular thing. Uh, The calendar shot, as I mentioned. And there's a beautiful place for calendar shots and because we all like calendars and, and certainly looking at those photographs is fun and inspiring and et cetera. But, but, it, but the real question is, is that personally expressive artwork that has the stamp of your unique vision on it? And, mm-hmm. and is that even necessary is, is a secondary question about that. I think those are not um, answered fully yet. I think we're a little too close to the Ansel Adams generation in the history of photography to fully answer what the nature of landscape photography is going to be. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to give it time for that pendulum to swing back a little bit. We're starting to see that. I mean, there there was a mini reverse swing with people like, Oh, Lewis Baltz and Lee Friedlander and Robert Adams and the new topographics and all of that. But none of that work ever connected with the public very well because it wasn't pretty pictures. And But the public hasn't recognized those yet as being significant photographic artists. Matter of fact, if you walked, do what I call the airport test, ask a hundred random people at the airport uh, to name all the photographers that that they can name. They'll probably name one. You know, they'll say Ansel Adams. That's it. Ask them about, uh, tell me all the famous novelists that you can think of. They'll give you a long list. Tell me all the famous musicians you can think of. They'll give you a long list. All the photographers, one, Ansel Adams. And no one's going to ever say Louis Baltz or Lee Friedlander or Robert <laughs> Adams, and let alone Edward Weston. Or, or P.H. Emerson or whoever. So Ansel is just such a dominant thing in the non-photographic public's mind that it's going to be a, a while for that to disappear. And in the meantime, the rest of us who are landscape photographers live in his shadow, even though he died now, what is it, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, we still live in his shadow and his um, impact on what is uh, acceptable photography is still the dominant vision. Mm. That doesn't mean that we should do that, uh, but but it's a reality in the times in which we live. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I'm sure you know. Like as you said, it's if you think about it, the 
<laughs> landscape photography as an art form is very young. It's, you know, what, a century? Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Um, you but that imagine- aesthetic is not. That aesthetic goes way back. Sure, you know, but you got to imagine that. The, the, the spectacular the, scene and the spectacular light image is an aesthetic that Ansel inherited from painters long before him. Sure. I mean, you got to imagine, though, that like with classical composers or, or I guess, you know, if you translate to other art forms, I'm sure that, you know, they, they just they have the benefit of the art form being around for much, much longer so that you can see a much broader spectrum of the representation of that art form. Well, look at it this way in, in music. Uh, Bach was such an unbelievable dominant force in, in music that the, the generation or two or three or four who came right. after him ha- had to measure up to Bach and you know, it's it's hard to imagine Prokofiev being um, a contemporary of Bach because he just couldn't have been. He could not have produced what he did, uh, and or Rachmaninoff could not have produced that music until enough years had gone by that they could bring something new, and it wasn't said. Well, this doesn't sound like Bach, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're, what you're saying is like maybe in 100, 200 years, there will be photographers not named Ansel Adams that the general public will give a crap about. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to think so. And probably if the history of art tells us anything is that it, it may take a while for the public to catch up and for art historians even to catch up. And so what what does that mean for people like you and I who are contemporary photographers working today? Well, I think what it means is we do our work, we do the best we can, we give it everything we we can in terms of sensitivity and awareness and compassion, all those things I've talked about, and you do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. If, on the other hand, you care more about commerce than personally expressive art media, then you're going to produce things that look like Ansel Adams and hopefully sell, even though they won't sell as well as an Ansel Adams photograph, they'll sell for a lot less. (laughs) So so maybe you can make a living at it or, you know, pay for some equipment or whatever the case may be. But in the meantime, all you've done is sort of make imitative work and, Mm. You know, that can be a lot of fun for someone who's a hobbyist. I, I think there's there's tremendous virtue in going out, go to Yosemite and try to make Ansel Adams photographs. It's It's a tremendously educational thing and it can be a lot of fun. But if what you're trying to do is make something that's personally expressive artwork, then I think it's much more interesting to say, what is your response to Yosemite? And people like Jerry Ulesman and Ted Orland, well, there's lots of them, but uh, there's lots of images of Yosemite that do that successfully and are personally expressive photographs that don't look at all like Ansel Adams' work. But that's hard. And probably what you're going to get as a result of that is some derision because uh, on 
Facebook or Instagram <laughs> or whatever, you're going to collect lots and lots and lots of thumbs down because it's that's not what it looks like. That's not what it's supposed to be. Right. Yeah, it's funny when I uh, I just went to Yosemite for the first time in February, and uh, well, as a photographer, and um, I had the I I have this kind of weird thing that I do that I uh, where I purposely don't look at other photographers work of places that I'm going to go photograph because I don't want to have those preconceived ideas stuck in my mind of what to look for. And I came away with some really interesting photographs that, I mean, I don't even know that you can tell that it's Yosemite in some of them. I mean, unless, unless I included half dome, which I did in like one or two photographs, you really wouldn't know that it was Yosemite at all. But I find that approach to photography to be I don't know. It's challenging. It's fun. It's um, you come away with images that are more personally expressive, as you were seeing, and you and you also end up with a lot more photos that people don't necessarily appreciate, and they might not be great photos either. But it's still they're your photos. <laughs> you know. Well, I think that's a very healthy attitude, much healthier than my attitude was because uh, when I was younger. My approach was to simply not go to those places because <laughs> I, I didn't want to be into. So I I never went and photographed in the desert southwest, for example, because everybody goes to the desert southwest and photographs uh, and yeah. goes to the slit canyons and goes to Utah and et cetera, canyon lands and all those places. And I just thought I, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to make <laughs> pictures that look like everybody else. Well. Eventually, a friend of mine said, "Hey, let let's go down to go, go down to Capitol Reef and spend some time photographing down there." And I really didn't want to go because I was intimidated, and and I knew that it was going to be a siren call of of uh, imitation that I wasn't sure I could resist. But when I got down there, uh, what I discovered was that it was pretty easy to make my own pictures if I just didn't even think about what other people had done. Yeah. So I, I just tried to respond to the place and yeah. I ended up making a couple of interesting projects that don't look like anything anybody else has ever done there. And I was pretty happy with them. And then I realized, gosh, I should have gone there 30 years ago <laughs> because who, <laughs> who knows what I may have missed because I was so silly about trying to avoid the cliche. Yeah. It's funny how that works. Well, you know, you're the publisher of, of Lenswork Magazine. You have uh, a podcast, which I thoroughly enjoy listening to. And you also have a website full of awesome photography resources and Lenswork online. And you've been making photographs and looking at photographs for, it sounds like, the greater part of 40 or 50 years now. And um, you're also a publisher of other people's work. Mm -hmm. And I was really curious to hear about what you look for as a publisher in other people's photographs. Wow, that's a, that's a really terrific question. Uh, keep in mind as a publisher, we have um, different obligations <laughs> than – an artist who's producing personally expressive artwork. So uh, we, we have a certain audience that we need to satisfy. And so that, that guides to some degree our selection. That having been said, however, 
we're not hesitant about sort of imposing our will because because <laughs> uh, Lenswork is our publication and it's it's our brainchild. And when Maureen and I first got married, you know, well, if you want to hear the story, it's kind of funny. She was a photographer. I, I'm a photographer. This is long before lens work. We met each other. We fell in love. And we, we did what everybody would do is just talk shop, you know, talk photography. And sure. um, I asked her what photography magazines that she read and subscribed to. And she says, well, I don't subscribe to any because I'm not interested in cameras. And she said, what magazines do you subscribe to? And I said, I don't subscribe to any magazines either because they're all about cameras. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not very interested in cameras, but I'm really interested in photography. And she said, well, that's interesting. Could you describe the magazine that you would like to, sub to subscribe to uh, if it were available? I said, I can only describe it. I can show it to you because I had in my collection, I still have in my collection, some of the very early issues of Aperture from the 1950s when oh, Minor sure. White was publishing it. Yeah. And they were still black and white, and they were relatively small. They're about the same size as lens work, really pretty close. And it was just photographs and the occasional poem or haiku, um, sometimes a little more text than that. But they, they were beautifully produced, printed way ahead of the – normal commercial printing of their day in the fifties. They were just lovely. I said, I, I would, I would subscribe to something like this. And she said, well, you know, why, why don't you now? And I said, well, it doesn't really exist now. Aperture is not what it was in the fifties when minor white was doing it's fine magazine. I have nothing against it, but it just wasn't my aesthetic cup of tea. Mm -hmm. they, they've mm -hmm. gone into very modern art sort of thing. Sure. And she said, well, why don't we do one? And so that was how lens work got started. We, we said, why not? So we decided we would put together a photography magazine that was about photography. And the first, actually the first 11 issues of lens work had no photographs in it. It was all text and writing and articles and interviews about photography and the creative process. And in retrospect, maybe it wasn't my best business idea ever to do a photography magazine that had no photographs in it. So, <laughs> so, so uh, right. starting well, try, with try doing a uh, pod. Well, you know, podcasts aren't visual on at all. photography. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so we d we eventually decided we had to have photographs in lens work, and but the question then becomes, what do we publish, and uh, I, I went back to my workshop experiences that I had had in the 80s, and I realized that there was a body of work that I never, ever saw. Because here's what would happen. It would come time for the critique session in a workshop, and people would put up their images, and the instructors and the fellow students would, would make their commentary, etc. And we'd go all the way through the room, and almost without exception, when all the critiques were done, someone in the room would say, I've got another thing I'd like to show if we have time. I've done this little portfolio. And they would bring out a portfolio box, sort of done along the lines of the Ansel Adams portfolios or the Brett Weston portfolios, clamshell box with a title page and maybe a dozen or so images all matted and beautifully presented and intended to be seen as a thing, as a unit. 
kind of like a fine art photography book. And they would show this thing with, like I say, a dozen images. But those would never get exhibited in galleries because they all want your greatest hits because that's what they'll sell. And so these portfolios, which seemed like lots of photographers were producing, had no place to be seen. Mm. And we thought, rather than putting greatest hits images in lens work, we could put portfolios that consisted of 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 images that were intended to explore a topic a little more deeply. So that's what we started doing in the early days of lens work is only bodies of work that were intended to be seen as a group. Now, you asked earlier about what do we look for? Well, that's the first thing we look for is a body of work. But there's, I I think there's some really interesting things to note about what works in a body of work and what doesn't. A body of work that's simply a collection of disconnected greatest hits may make a pile of prints that can be artificially held together with a title. Ansel did a number of these. Um, no, notice I can use his first name now like we're buddies. <laughs> <laughs> he he did a number of portfolios that were like that, but the really successful ones and the successful ones that Brett Weston did, etc., were where they took one idea, one place, one theme, one subject, and explored it more deeply. And so that's what we look for, is a group of images that explore a theme more deeply. And there's a very fine line there between exploring more deeply and simply becoming repetitive. Right. You know, you you could say, well, I'm going to do a portfolio project of uh, feathers, let's say. We've published a couple of those. And you could end up making 20 images of feathers, but when you get right down to it, what there is is maybe two. Right. You know, and there's so just different compositions and different angles and et cetera. And that's not really a body of work because you don't know anything after you've looked at the 20th one that you didn't know when you looked at the second one. Hmm. So a body of work that has more than a, f- a couple of images in it needs to 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 bring something each image needs to bring something to the collection that adds that builds that makes us know more feel more experience more such that if any one of those images were removed the project would be diminished somehow and that's a matter of editing and sequencing and being able to distill to the essence and know, knowing when you've distilled too far or when you haven't distilled enough, those are generally skills that are not being taught, That right. at least anywhere that I can see. I mean, the whole time you've been talking, I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> you well, know? you know, you, you didn't used to. It used to be that photographers made a pile of prints and they shipped them off to a publisher somewhere and the publisher did the editing. Think think of the classic case of National Geographic. Photographer takes 100 rolls of film, sends them in, and editors whose expertise is doing just exactly that, figuring out which images to select, what sequence to put them in to tell the story, exactly how many there need to be, etc. Well, we didn't need to know those skills as photographers, and so it's not something that there is a history of in photography. There's a history in editing, 
and publishing, but not in photography. But my contention is that's a skill that we photographers today desperately need to to learn. By by the same token, by the way, just as a parallel, um, I, I remember in the early days of digital when a wedding photographer I, I knew told me that his his workflow had changed dramatically because now he had to understand color balance and color correction because when he provided digital files to people, they had to be perfect in terms of color rendition for the wedding photographs or whatever. And he said prior to that in the film world, he would just take the film and ship it off to the, to the printer and the printer would do all of the color corrections and adjustments in order to make the great prints. You see, but he had to learn those skills. Well, by the same token now, we can no longer as photographers stop once we've made the images and maybe done some post-processing to clean them up or improve them a little bit. Editing and sequencing and coming up with titles and even writing text. And if, if you happen to be doing blurb books, things like book layout and design, those are all skill sets that we now desperately need. But what people think they need is the latest Photoshop filter, and that will make them an artist. <laughs> they're, they're just missing so much. It's, uh, it's frustrating. Yeah, so why, why is that frustrating to you? Well, because uh, I've, I've been talking about these issues since, uh, well, for as long as we've been publishing Lenswork, which is 27 years now, I've been talking about the need that photographers have to learn things like layout and design. And that how layout and design and graphic arts are skills that can make our artistic output better, more impactful, more interesting, more mesmerizing. But so many photographers are still in pursuit of the right uh, uh, iPhone filter that they can apply to their JPEG and think that's artwork. Well, yeah, it, it may be. But that's just scratching the surface. And if you're an artist who has something to say, then things like editing and sequencing and layout and design and as well as post-processing are tools that we can have in our bag that allow us to make better, more interesting, more compelling artwork. And we should. But a lot of photographers are too busy chasing megapixels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, guilty. I mean, I especially as a landscape photographer, I think a lot of us love the gear stuff and I purposely don't talk much about gear on the podcast just because I think it sounds like you and I agree like that stuff is fun to talk about, but it's not it's not necessarily all that meaningful nor is it produce any conversation that has much depth, you know? Well, here's one of my favorite stories from a very, very early issue of Lenswork. We published a photographer from California named Larry Weiss. And Larry was, <clears throat> excuse me, Larry was doing some very interesting work with under the lens diffusion. Now, if you're not an analog photographer, you may have no idea what I'm talking about. But essentially, he would put a negative in the enlarger and focus it so that he could make a print. And then he would put underneath the lens, so 
essentially between the lens and the paper, he would put a fabric like a nylon or something that would diffuse the light and make a very fuzzy looking image with uh, some big details, but the little details, the small things would all disappear in sort of a, a, a dark gray smudge. Mm-hmm. And it was a very interesting aesthetic, and he, he did a fascinating project of this. And he tells, told the story when I interviewed him about showing this work to a friend of his. And the friend was critical, did, didn't like it because it didn't look like a photograph was supposed to look. It's supposed to be sharp. It's supposed to be in focus and all that kind of stuff. And he said, for example, he said, I, I, I wish I could see the leaves in the trees. And Larry said, well, you know it's a tree, don't you? And he said, yes, I do. And, he, and Larry said, what more do you need to know? <laughs> I, I thought that was a beautiful story. If you look at his image and you see this sort of lonely tree standing in the park, you, you get it. You don't need to see the leaves in order to get the emotional message. As a matter of fact, all of that detail may get in the way of the emotion because you'll be too busy looking at the leaves instead of the mood. Mm. And photography as an art medium is more about mood than it is about reproductive detail. But you couldn't convince today's landscape photographers of that because the, if you look (laughs) at the press and the media and YouTube reviews and, you know, the Tony Northrup's of the world and all those people, it's all about more and more and more megapixels so that we can see more and more and more detail. Well, I think that's driven by commercial interests though, right? Well, certainly. Yeah. Can't (laughs) camera manufacturers and whatnot, but yeah. I mean, affiliate marketing and all of that stuff is like those people don't, well, I shouldn't presume they don't care, but I don't think they really care. I think they're just hyping it so that they can make some money. Well, it's lovely to have that technical ability. And if they can make it, I'm glad they do, because there are probably occasions where you need it. But of course, it was no less a landscape photographer than Ansel Adams who said there's nothing worse than a sharp photograph of a fuzzy concept. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I I think a lot of, there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into all of the aesthetic decisions that we make when we're making decisions about equipment and about processing and about presentation and about publishing, that's all a series of aesthetic decisions that lead us down a path to the production of something that we hope we can call artwork. But the measure of the success of that artwork to some degree is a function of the cumulative effect of all of those aesthetic decisions. And I think each piece of work that we do or each photographic project that we do uh, can lead us down a different path of aesthetic decision depending on what it is that we're trying to say artistically and emotionally and et cetera. But that's, uh, that's out of step with today's zeitgeist, and I recognize that, and that, that's okay. I, I'm not going to be around for that much longer anyway because I'm 66 <laughs> years old now. So well, I was going to say, Brooks. I mean, you know, it's interesting because I would I would argue that a lot of modern landscape photographers, if you ask them what do they have to say, they would 
stumble a great deal around having an answer to that question. Well, they may not be able to verbalize it. And that's the problem of language. When I, when I say to some photographer, what do you have to say? That doesn't mean that I think they can suddenly whip out a bit of English <laughs> language verbiage that will tell. If they could do that, then they wouldn't need to photograph. Mm-hmm. So may, maybe it would be better global search and replace. Say with express. What, what do you want to express through your mm. photographs? Right. And that's the heart of art. If we all ask that question of ourselves as landscape photographers, I think myself included, uh, often we would struggle, and maybe I'm just internalizing this, but I struggle to always have an answer to that question. You know? Well, we all do. I mean, that's not unusual. That is the process of being an artist. I mean, it, it divides itself into two... Um, two halves of the artistic life. The first half, which is typically done in the relatively early years, or at least mostly done in the early years, is mastering craft. So we say, hey, I want to be a photographer for whatever reason. And so you buy a camera and you read the manual and you take a bunch of courses and you you know, watch YouTube videos and you learn. And, and you learn how to do what you do. And that's great. And sometimes... Well, in my generation, that often took a decade to master <laughs> right. the zone system and film developing and all that. Now you can do it much faster than that. But still, that has to be done or you're just fumbling around in the dark, so to speak. But the other half of the career is what do you have to express? And that's not something that comes by learning technique or learning technology. It, it comes from that part about developing yourself as a human being. And w- one of the saddest stories that I can tell from my photographic life was a very, very good friend of mine who was an absolute master printer. Uh, he had gone to everybody's workshop and he had spent untold hours in the darkroom and he could make a black and white print that would just sing. It was, it was a, a thing to behold. He shot with the best lenses on eight by 10 cameras. He had spent a couple of decades mastering his craft. And one day he just walked away, sold his darkroom, sold his camera. That was it. No more photography. And, and, and I, I ran into him sometimes later and I said, what happened? You were such a fantastic photographer. And he said, in the spirit of true confession, he said, you know, after I had learned how to make a decent black and white print, and I could kind of pretty much do it at will, I realized I had nothing to say. Mm. So he quit photography and took up golf. (laughs) And, you know, I've always felt bad for him because here he had this skill that he had developed so well that was unusable to him because he had not uh, developed the other side of the art life, which is the heart or what the Japanese call Kokoro, the heart mind. Oh, speaking of that. (laughs) Yeah. What a great segue. (laughs) Um, 
This is precisely what I try to do with my personal work. Now, this has nothing to do with lens work, but um, uh, some people, for example, in the world only know me as the publisher of lens work and the podcast guy and all that kind of stuff. But I was a photographer long before lens work, and I'll be a photographer long after lens work's done. And so that that presents me in an odd sort of way with a very unique problem, <laughs> which is this. I'm probably the one guy in the world who cannot get his work published in another photography magazine because <laughs> I'm a competitor. Yeah. So, right. uh, and, and I can't really publish my own work in lens work because that's sort of tacky and self-serving. Although I've done it a couple of times just to illustrate a point. Sure. But, but where do I get my work out into the world? Well, it dawned on me that because I'm a publisher and I have publishing skills and I know something about the software and et cetera, why not just publish my own work? So a number of years ago, I started a, uh, a regular publication, a periodical publication, if you will, uh, that is uh, released as a PDF only. I don't do it in print because I, I don't want to have to get commerce involved. I don't want to have to sell it. Keep in mind that my objective for my photography is to connect with other human beings. And commerce puts up a barrier to that, not only the physical distribution of prints and books and all that kind of stuff, but now some money gets involved and people may or may not have the ability to buy things or want to buy things. But but I don't want that to be in the way of sharing my work with the world. So I publish it as a free PDF on my website and not the Lenswork website on my personal website. And people can go and I, I put out a new PDF about every other month or so, depending on how busy I am, but pretty much every other month. And each issue of Kokoro, which by the way is Japanese for the heart mind. If I didn't mention that, I should have um, the heart mind coming from um, a quote from Lafcadio Hearn, who is a, uh, a Westerner who lived in Japan, married a Japanese woman. This is in the 19th century. And he did a publication called Kokoro. And he explained it this way. He said, Kokoro is the heart mind, kind of like when we say in English, to get to the heart of the matter or to get to the heart of things, the center of things. So I call my little publication Kokoro. And each issue has four, sometimes as many as six small projects. Each project might have a dozen images or six images, rarely more than, than a couple of dozen images, exploring some idea or thought or subject or place or something that occurs to me oftentimes with a little tiny bit of text, maybe a paragraph or two. And anyway, I publish these on a regular on a regular basis so that my photography can go out in the world. And the whole hope is that people look at it and connect with the idea or the thought or the place. If someone emails me after they've seen an issue of Kokoro and said, man, you, your understanding of the RGB color space is fabulous. I, I, <laughs> I, I know I've failed. <laughs> what I hope is the response where, and I, I get these emails from time to time, is someone comes back and says, I, you know, I read your text 
and I saw your photographs and, you know, I, I kind of teared up a little bit because it reminded me of my father or some, some such oh, thing, wow. you know, yeah. and then I know I've really connected with someone. That's, that's why I do art is not to make money, not to sell them, not to help decorate their living room. I want to connect. And so for me, I've devised this, uh, publication, this PDF, as specifically targeted to do that. So, like I say, free so that people don't have to pay for it so there's not a barrier. Having four to six little projects, so if one of them doesn't appeal to you, maybe the next one will. So they're a bit of an anthology in nature, and hopefully people can find something they connect with. Uh, I include text because it's not just sort of bragging about my photographic skills and gee, aren't I clever because I made this unique photograph. What I'm hoping to do is express something about life through my photographs, through my words, through the text that I write. And if people enjoy it, fabulous. I've connected with them and, and I can do so globally. And that to me is one of the great advantages of being a photographer in this day and age is think of the challenge that Edward Weston had to get his photographs out into the world. In the first place, photography wasn't considered an art form. In the second place, if there wasn't a print, there wasn't a photograph Mm -hmm. where you and I can make photographs that exist only ethereally on computer monitors and telephones or telephones. Uh, smartphones and and tablets and things. But we can also connect with people all over the world. So this is part of what led me, I'm I'm getting a little bit of stray here, but I think you can see how it all integrates. This is part of what led me to think of the internet not as a brochure that I use to sell my prints, you know, in the, the typical thumbnail, big picture and buy button that that's the paradigm of 99 out of a hundred photographers websites. So it's, it's a, it's a brochure to sell prints. No, I, I use the internet as a means to distribute my artwork. That means it's not commercial, which is okay with me because like I said, uh, if I if I were an avid golfer, I wouldn't expect to make a living with my golfing skills unless I was one of the, you know, 150 best golfers in the world who were on the PGA Tour. There's room for that. But the vast majority of people who golf do so because it's fun. Mm. And I would do photography if I never sold anything ever to anybody. I would still do it because it's fun. And I would even pay for the privilege of doing it by buying cameras and computers and whatever I need. Basically what most of us do anyway. (laughs) Yeah. We, because the reality is there's not a huge market for photographs, at least not for fine art photographs, Uh, maybe for newspaper photographs, documentary, those kinds of things. But for the kinds of stuff that you and I do, probably not. (laughs) Well, Brooks, this has been fun. I, uh, kind of winding down, I was wondering if you could, maybe recommend a couple of people uh, for us to have here on the podcast. 
Well, um, yeah, there's there are a few people who we've published in Lenswork who I've found to be inspiring in the long run. That is to say, I keep going back to their work and looking at it over and over. We've published them more than once in Lenswork because they're on a creative path that I think is just fabulous. Uh, the first of which is probably Huntington Witherell, California photographer, uh, lives in Monterey, does fantastic work. He started off as a traditional black and white landscape photographer, and he's embraced digital workflow and imaginative imagery. So you can see a broad spectrum of work in his creative career. And he's got a very good website, and he, he's one I, I definitely uh, keep an eye on on a regular basis. Uh, another one is Brigitte Carnican, a little less well-known. She's a San Francisco photographer, a woman who's doing some, I think, some of the most interesting work uh, in photography today. I wish she was more popular, so I don't mind giving her a little extra uh, visibility here by recommending her. Um, she does a lot of recombinant imagery, uh, a lot of uh, alternative process work. She has embraced digital photography, but yet she'll do things like make digital negatives that she then contact prints uh, oh, with platinum palladium. <laughs> so very interesting woman, uh, very innovative photographer. Uh, it, to, to go to the farthest end of that sort of thinking is a photographer named Dominic Rouse, R-O-U-S-E. And Dominic does... Uh, he is a surrealist in the tradition of uh, Salvador Dali and Magritte, and he, he makes Jerry Yulesman's recombinant imagery seem sort of primitive. I love Jerry Yulesman, and I love his work, but, but um, golly, Dominic Rouse is just doing some of the most far out stuff you can imagine, and uh, very interesting if you like that kind of work. Mm. swinging back again to the more traditional side of things. Uh, I love Cole Thompson's work. He continues to impress me. We've published him very many times in lens work. And um, uh, he, he, he does use digital techniques, but he uses them in a very traditional sort of analog aesthetic. And I think does some, some really beautiful work. And, um, I wish more people knew about him. I'm, I'm always delighted when we publish. Matter of fact, he was in the last issue of Lenswork. And, yeah, he's uh, actually the one, the person who I got that idea of kind of that photographic celibacy um, hmm. of, yeah. of not, you know, purposely not looking at other people's work um, before you go out. I think I actually picked that up from my friend Sarah Marino, but um, she got it from him. So yeah, Cole, I I really enjoy looking at Cole's work as well. Yeah. One final uh, person I'll mention partly because I just love his work. He he's my my who 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 would I take with me to a desert island or whose book would I want to <laughs> take with me to a desert island? He always rises to the occasion. His name is Carl Chiarenza. And uh I I'm also mentioning him for a, a more tangible and uh slightly commercial reason is that he's the next monograph that we're publishing in Lenswork. Oh, cool. uh, Carl's uh, 84, 85, something like that. Now he was a teacher uh, for many, many, many years. He's of the um, 
Minor White generation of photographers, uh, beautiful, beautiful abstracts, most of which he makes in his basement, photographing torn pieces of paper and aluminum foil and et cetera. Oh, wow. Very inventive, very bright guy. And uh, I just love his work. It's it's fascinating. We've published him twice in Lenswork before, and this is the first time we're doing a monograph of his work. Uh, and so we're very excited to work with him again, Carl Chiarenza. So he, he's he's definitely well worth looking up. Awesome. All of well, those people have have websites, by the way, and you can see their work on online. Yeah, well, definitely. I always uh, put a link to everyone's website uh, to who you know the guests recommend. So we'll definitely put that in the show notes for sure. Cool. Well, terrific, Mac. Matt. It's been uh, enjoyable to to chat with you and hope I didn't well. uh, take up too much of your time because I know we've gone over the time limit, but uh, no, this has been wonderful. Can, can you tell I'm passionate about photography? Oh, I, I definitely can. And I really appreciate it. I knew that you were going to be a great conversation um, and uh, definitely exceeded all of my expectations. So thank you so much, Brooks. I can't thank you enough. Well, keep in touch. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you to Brooks for joining us for a wonderful conversation here on the podcast. You have been a huge inspiration to me over the years, and I can't thank you enough for all you do. I highly recommend everyone check out his work in the show notes. It is really wonderful. I also got the chance to listen to some of the archived recordings that Brooke has over on Lenswork Online from the 80s and 90s. Talk about inspiring, man. It's just full of amazing conversation. I really recommend listeners take a look at that as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can join Brooks and I over on Patreon for a 20 plus minute conversation about open editions versus limited edition prints, which I found to be quite interesting. Also, there's over 100 bonus episodes on Patreon, including over 14 hours of additional conversation for you people hold up during quarantine. And we cover a wide variety of topics from macro photography, philosophical debates, business ideas, and a lot more. Join the other 138 awesome supporters of the show by heading to patreon.com slash fstop and listen. Well, I honestly can't thank our patrons enough for keeping us afloat during COVID-19. Your support is truly appreciated more than you'll ever know. And like I said in Patreon, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm more than happy to sit down and help you out. Maybe do some post-processing with you. Whatever you need from me, I'm here for you. All right, well, one last plug before we get into who is coming on next on the show. I recently sat down and recorded a very fun video with Ian Plant on his Shutter Monkeys YouTube series, where I discussed my personal thinking around my pursuit of landscape photography and some of the mistakes that I've made along the way, which there are many. Check out the show notes for a link to that video. Here is what's coming up on the show. Next up on the podcast, we are releasing our all-women panel discussion, which I hope will ruffle some feathers and inspire some honest conversation in the industry. And I've also got some upcoming recordings with Christian Fletcher, Nick Carver, Drew Armstrong, John Barkley, Ethan Deshays, Todd Cottle, Manuel Palacios, Margaret Soraya, Joseph Roybal, Felix Inden, and Elizabeth Brontano. We are very busy here on the podcast. Well, do you have an idea for a podcast episode or want me to promote something that you're working on? Feel free to send me an email at matt at 
www.thinkingdigital.com. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.